Welcome to the Walla Mom Show, where we say everything you can't say in Portland. It's your girl, Karen. I do this for free. I have a family. I'm a mom of young kids, and I run a small business. I run a law firm in Portland, downtown. I'm a practicing lawyer with an active trial court practice. It's an effort to put this podcast out. If you appreciate the effort and you want to support the podcast, please like and subscribe on your podcast platform. Give us a good rating on iTunes because that helps boost the podcast and please tell a friend. I got a message from a listener who said he's trying to get a friend to listen to the podcast, but that the friend thinks I'm Antifa and the friend is suspicious of me. The friend knew the kinds of threats and harassment I get with Antifa-oriented accounts on Twitter. I think that myth would be dispelled immediately. If you've heard anything on this podcast before, you know I'm not Antifa and I'm no longer down with BLM. The fact is, since 2020, when people hear the word Portland, they think of wall of moms and riots. So the name of the show seemed like an obvious choice to me because I'm podcasting out of and talking a lot about Portland. And I used to be part of the far left. And although I wasn't present at the protests slash riots, I initially supported them until they turned into riots. Interestingly, though, I don't get any threats or harassment from the right. I'm not a self-identified Republican or even libertarian. I'm a registered Democrat, never voted for a Republican in my life. But the most I get from the right is harmless criticism. Usually I get helpful criticism. I also get a lot of good and interesting questions. I brought this up with a left-leaning friend I have, and her theory is that left-leaning people are more computer literate. And that's so they're able to dig through my Twitter feed and make collages of posts to dunk on me or particular clips of the show and use that to dunk on me. I swear they must spend days on this kind of stuff. I disagree with her though. As far as I know, the right-wing people who follow me are not affiliated with any violent groups. And as far as I know, they're not proud boy types. Many of them are even employed as engineers and IT people. So there's no way they don't know how to do what the Antifa trolls do. I think the difference is the response of Antifa to anything they don't like is threats of violence and vitriol. I'm sure there are right-wing people who hate listen to the podcast, just like Antifa. The difference is their responses, while critical, are not harassing, and they never threaten me with violence. I'm not saying that all right-wing people are peaceful. Certainly there are violent white supremacists who would identify as right-wing, and there was violence at the January 6th Capitol riot. Certainly the Proud Boys aren't afraid of violence, but for whatever reason, none of them are interested in trolling me. The people who are interested are the extreme of the far left, and that's part of the reason I feel abandoned by the left wing. They used to be my people. I know Antifa doesn't represent the left wing, but a lot of their eat the rich type rhetoric is parroted by your democratic lawmakers, most prominently by AOC, who I used to love. I mean, I still love her questioning of people in congressional hearings. I think she would have made a great trial lawyer, but nonetheless. The overlap of rhetoric between our left-wing lawmakers and Antifa really troubles me. Back to the title of the show. Look, guys, the definition of parody is that it calls attention to a weakness or an overuse convention and ridicules them. And I'll leave it at that. If that's above you, so be it. Frankly, the name of the podcast is not only making fun of what people associate with in Portland, it's making fun of myself. I think the person who's suspicious of me is emblematic of a big problem in this country, which is we have a lot of closed-minded people who aren't willing or even open to the idea of just listening to people with other perspectives. Even worse, they're suspicious of people who admit they were wrong and that they've changed their minds, and that's a tragedy because it's really, really hard to do.
On the show today, we're going to hear from Sarah. She's going to come out for the first time as a conservative in Portland. Only her family knows. She's going to share it with you guys, though. Here she goes. Welcome to the Walla Moms podcast. I'm your host, Karen, where we say everything that you can't say in Portland. Today, I have Sarah on the show. Sarah is home from college break. She's here back in Portland on winter break from her Southern private school. Uh, Sarah went to Portland public schools. She went to high school at one of the biggest public schools in Portland. Sarah went to Lincoln High School, which is um, the high school that's located in downtown Portland. So she has a unique perspective. She is... Are you comfortable saying how old you are, Sarah? Yeah, 20. She's 20 years old. So are you a millennial? I think technically Gen Z, but like maybe right on the cusp. Okay, millennial slash Gen Z. And you're currently in your second year of college? Mm-hmm. So would you describe your, I would describe your socioeconomic background as upper class. Does that sound right to you? So you were one of those kids who uh, went to Lincoln who, after school, would take the, take, take the bus over to the math club kind of a thing? Yeah, most days, yeah. So most days you spent in, in school, and then after school you would head over to the Multnomah Athletic Club? Yeah, up until I had access to a car, and then I would drive myself home at times. But all throughout middle school, the bus dropped me off at the MAC also, so... I spent a lot of time there and still do, honestly. And for those listeners who aren't familiar with this, the Multnomah Athletic Club is sort of the premier athletic club, probably certainly the premier athletic club that's focused on athletics in the city of Portland. There are other upper-class sort of social clubs that are expensive and and exclusive, such as like Waverly uh, or the University Club, but... The Multnomah Athletic Club is focused specifically on, it does have restaurants and things, but it's focused specifically on its gym. And if you're, generally, if you're an upper-class connected person, you are going to belong to the MAC Club. And I, I just want to set that framework for our listeners so that they they kind of understand the composite of, of who you are, Sarah, and, and the place that you're speaking from. So... When you were in public school in uh, Portland, what was that experience like? I mean, at some point, you must have, and I don't know if you just felt like it was, an, it was innate, but at some point, you must have noticed politics and political leanings of certain people that you interacted with. until I became more aware of politics myself. So I didn't realize that like us reading exclusively Howardson in middle school would be remotely controversial or like having a critical race theory class all throughout my four years at Lincoln was something that other schools didn't have. Um, but I think up in my freshman year of high school in the 2016 election, I think politics just became a lot more overt for everyone. And that's definitely when I started noticing like a campaigning on either side from the teachers 
and just kind of the more introduction of politics and political ideas into subjects that I didn't think normally included those. But prior to high school, I definitely, I don't think I had any recognition of the political leanings of any of my educators. So to the extent you started becoming politically aware, it was when you were in high school? Yeah, I'd say probably my first year of high school is when I kind of got a gauge for even what different political ideas were. And prior to that, I was kind of just floating along, really kind of not paying attention at all to anything. Cause I mean, I was like 13, nothing really had an effect on me, but I think for a lot of young people experienced it in 2016 was it was hard to be apolitical at that point. So you're asking like 14 year olds, are your parents Trump supporters? Do you like Trump? Do you like Hillary Clinton? I think that kind of is where a lot of like political engagement from young people comes from was just that 2016 election and the inability to kind of be neutral on that and like that everyone needed to have an opinion. What do you think was different about that election? Was it just because of Trump? I guess so. I think that like the rhetoric of Trump and just how different it was compared to any other political candidate who had run before. I think just triggered, set off a lot of people, I mean, rightly so in a lot of ways, but it just created an environment where everything that previously wasn't political became very political, uh, even for people, yeah, as young as 13 and below, when previously, like, I don't know if in the Reagan elections, eighth graders were really that concerned about who was going to win the election. What was it, from your perspective, about Trump that made turned up the temperature on politics? Yeah, I think it's just him kind of not playing by the rules. You could say, like, in a lot of ways, it was a disservice to him. But you see, like, career politicians like Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, people have been in Washington for 47 years and pretty much just stick to the norm. Um, I think that Trump, his personality in itself, obviously is going to deviate from that. But then his idea of just kind of shaking things up and uh, especially trying to introduce, I guess, people who aren't normally involved in politics, like coal miners in Appalachia, uh, to become more part of the discourse instead of it kind of letting it be run by the elite populations of people who vote and the rest of the people don't really cast a vote and it doesn't matter. Um, but I'm not sure why it is exactly that that election kind of got run into a frenzy. I think partially the media, partially Trump himself, and then a variety of other factors. Earlier, you said at Lincoln um, that most kids maybe didn't read exclusively, and I didn't catch what you said. They, they don't read exclusively what? What did you read exclusively? Oh, when I was talking about in middle school, we read oh, middle only school. like Howardson history books, which is like a very... I don't even know what that is. It's like a kind of progressive and newer version of history where it's like kind of portraying America as the bad guy as opposed to other history books where it like still has a somewhat pro-America feel to it. And I'm not anti-Howardson at all. I enjoy reading the books, but it's just a different perspective than what some friends of mine in college who went to school in New York have had. It just shows you kind of from a young age, that's the perspective that we're getting for better or worse. It's called, the author is Howard Zinn. Yeah. Is it Z-I-N-N? Yeah. This is so interesting that I've never... So when you came home, did you did you come home and say, I'm reading this, and did your parents know who that was? 
Yeah, I'm sure my parents know who they were. I've just heard it come up a lot, I mean, especially in like political videos. You'll sometimes hear people mention him. Uh, it was kind of like a minor point, though. He's not a huge figure. It doesn't wasn't super formulative for my like understanding of American history, but it is just an interesting perspective that we get when we're even from that young age choosing these authors who offer this progressive perspective um, compared to like I'm sure schools in Beaverton maybe aren't even doing that or even further out. And would you characterize it as sort of like a 1619 type project? Like, is he a male Hannah Nicole Jones? I think he's on the road there. It's not, I wouldn't say it's at the exact same perspective, but if there's a spectrum, he falls on the same side as Hannah Nicole Jones and is definitely moving that way. He probably walked so she could run. It's a little bit like that. So the lens is, the lens of American history is that um, I'm assuming, based on what you've said, is America as the oppressor? I, I think it kind of gets into that. I'd say progressive now, progressives now may even read Howard's in and feel like it's not progressive enough. It's not showing enough of America as the oppressor. But um, it is just an interesting comparison compared to, I think, what my parents grew up reading uh, and even what other students my age are reading at the time. But... I think I haven't read it in a long time, but maybe looking back, even I would look at it and say it's not as progressive as maybe it should be. But at the time, it was definitely um, a version of it that is, I think, more honest, but it's just a different version than what other people are learning. Oh, about. you think it is more, you think the Howard Zinn stuff is more honest <clears throat> than just a regular, more honest than 1619 or more honest than a, than a generic history book? I'd say certainly more honest than the 1619 Project. I think, I mean, it's like, I feel like generic history books do paint America in maybe a better light than they should have. It's difficult to say that now when it's like you can't mm -hmm. even mention, like, colonials or anything like that without, again, being branded like a racist. But I think it is kind of a fair perspective of, like, we didn't, the British people didn't get here and it was like, happy-go-lucky, everything was fine. It does kind of show that there was conflict between the native populations were here, but yeah, it's just a different perspective. I haven't read it in a long time, but I just remember that being like something of like, that's a controversial book. I wouldn't have even known because that's what we just treated as our textbook throughout middle school. So did you take a class that prompted your research? Yeah, so I don't think I really would have many political feelings at all if I hadn't have been required to learn about the Constitution and the branches of government and then through that form my own opinions on it. So we were tasked to kind of create our own perspectives, even if it was in the form of like playing a devil's advocate because they didn't want us to be like a monolith of opinions. Um, so I think that if I wouldn't have been tasked with finding a devil's advocate opinion, I may never have formed the opinions that I have now that I actually kind of started to come into my own on. So you were taught to look at the other side of any particular argument. Yeah, and that was through, the class was like run by outside volunteers. So they weren't Portland Public Schools educators. They were adults in the kind of the Portland scene. But we were like definitely encouraged to, it's not interesting to hear like a debate or an argument where everyone's agreeing on something. And so we were tasked like, we're not holding you to anything you say during this. We want, like, an interesting variety of opinions. If you have to be, like, the most stark neocon in the world, then do that just for the sake of arguments. So I think that was, like, 
super helpful and informative for me to kind of look into other opinions on issues. So when you say that you took CRT class classes at, at Lincoln, tell me about that. Yeah, so I never forecasted for them myself, so I did, wasn't a part of them, but it was just a course offering that we had available that had like a very uh, motivated and strong group that they were, there were multiple levels of it, they would take it every year, and it became like a very prominent part of Lincoln. They would do different kind of exhibits and have different um, nights and talks and stuff like that, but it was just funny when I started hearing it come up in the news as something so controversial when... Like, I hadn't even given it a second thought or thought anything of it while I um, was at Lincoln. I was exposed to it for all four years. That's amazing. So it was sort of an elective, and you could progress in that elective should you so choose? Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, it was probably a pretty committed group of people. Did, did you ever have experience with anybody who was taking the CRT classes who expressed any sort of interest in being contrarian to any of the ideas coming out of those classes? No, and, like, occasionally you would hear about students who would, like, raise their hand and say something in class, and they would pretty much immediately be be branded as, like, why is he even taking this class? He doesn't care about these issues. He's maybe even racist. And there were, like, a few students who were in the class who other people viewed as they shouldn't be able to be in this class because they don't share like the same values and views on these issues. So I didn't hear of anyone, I think even openly being contrarian, but simply asking certain questions that people felt like weren't driving with the trajectory of the class set people off. And did you actually hear people use the word racist to characterize anybody with a contrary opinion to the doctrine in the CRT classes or was it more implied I think it was more implied and then the term was kind of used for certain students anyways so I think it might have been like a, a some of their whole parts instead of just their like individual actions in the CRT classes so at Lincoln if somebody's branded a racist is this the, is this the kind of racist that say I'm, I'm middle-aged so I'm, when I hear racist I think I mean, frankly, I think of, like, my relatives. I think of people who use the word colored people or who use, uh, from time to time, use racial epithets casually. Or, you know, I have an uncle who, like, characterized some black kids on a porch as porch monkeys. That's what I think of as racist. Are these the kind of kids that were branded racist at Lincoln? No, I mean, it doesn't take much to be labeled a racist. And I think with, like, the constant use of it, the word has less weight to it now. Um, so, I mean, some people, it's like maybe they send a Snapchat that had the N-word in it, and then they're, like, truly a racist, and that's pretty much, like, stay away from that person. Other people, I think it's like they would have, I don't know what would lead to it, but they would be called a racist, and there's, like, a notion that this person was a sexist or a racist but it felt like nothing really happened to them and their friends kind of stuck with them. But it was just like, when that person's name come up, that word would come up with it. And it wasn't like, I don't think there was like demonstrable evidence of much, but it was just maybe a feeling people got or because of the questions they asked. It was just kind of implied that this person was probably, I don't know, racist. And they would actually use the word racist? Yeah, and I think for a lot of people in what 
I would notice, especially like as someone who held some conservative values, was it felt like it went. They were kind of trying to use the descriptor of conservative or like Republican, but instead the word choice was racist, and like there wasn't. I don't know if people could point to something racist that certain people had done, but instead it was like they're racist rather than I don't know maybe they're conservative or their parents support Trump or something like that. So at Lincoln, at least in your experience, and what year did you graduate? I graduated in 2020. So in Lincoln, at least in your experience, the terms racist and Republican were synonymous. I'd say somewhat synonymous. I mean, there's obviously instances where, uh, like, racially motivated things happened, and people use the term racist in that way. But I think a lot of times, if it was revealed that someone was minorly conservative, the immediate, at least, implication was that they had um, racist values, at least to some extent. What events occurred that you're referring to? Um, There was a couple of them while I was there. Someone wrote a paper that was kind of exploring what the Proud Boys values were and what they stood for. And there was, like, a huge uproar. We had multiple meetings about it. the article was like redacted. I'm pretty sure the entire editorial team had to issue apologies. And then that person was um, kind of branded as having maybe racial thoughts that weren't right or like being a Proud Boy sympathizer, just different events like that. But it was more kind of passing stuff. You know, high school people are always talking about each other, especially when we've all gone to middle school together. So that was, it was a school newspaper article about the Proud Boys? Yeah, I think it was talking through the magazine maybe. Uh, and people were mad that they had given kind of airtime or space to talk about uh, the Proud Boys. So nobody was curious. I mean, if you asked one of your classmates, what are the Proud Boys? What what are their what what do they believe in? Who who would join the Proud Boys? What what are the tenets of their organization? Would they know how to answer that question? I mean, I think probably, like, racist and white supremacists, because it is something that kind of comes up, but I don't think many people read the article after kind of the idea was put out there that we shouldn't even be talking about them at all. Like, they shouldn't be getting airtime at all. It's a Um, platform. Yeah. So I think people maybe didn't even read the article. I'm sure some people did, but... There was definitely, like, the editors were crying. It was huge backlash. Um, they were, there was, like, a meeting at lunch, and they were getting just kind of berated for even allowing this to go through. People who hadn't read the, written the article but had allowed it to have a platform were, like, um, went home from school for the day. It was, like, a big, it was a huge fiasco just over something that seemed maybe somewhat minor to myself. Well, and just... I mean, I find it odd that I haven't done more digging into it. I, I know I've listened to some Joe Rogan podcast because I think he talked. Do you listen to Rogan at all? I used to listen to him more. Did you hear the one where he interviewed the founder of the Proud Boys? I didn't. So that was really interesting. So I had like some idea about what the group was about, but I... I don't know how it, I don't really understand how it morphed into this quote-unquote white supremacist organization. And my understanding is the leader, at one point at least, was Hispanic. Do you have Yeah, that's what I think I heard too. So um, the whole thing's kind of confusing to me, which makes me 
curious about it, which is why I'm surprised I haven't delved into it more because I, it raises all these questions for me. And frankly, I'd like to know more about it because they're here all the time in Portland causing trouble and antagonizing Antifa. And obviously when those two get together, it's almost always violent. Yeah, I think both of them are kind of like these role-playing groups of people thinking that they're like living in a lawless society and saving the world and both kind of just role-playing and cosplaying as something bigger than what they are, which is like usually just kind of, I don't know, bum people with nothing better to do than like go downtown and fight each other. I think both groups are like total instigators and really aren't very productive-seeming members of society. But it's just interesting that I really have no grasp of what they are either, and they are such a... I don't know, present force in Portland, especially... They're front and center. Yeah. I mean, I think it would be odd if if a high school, particularly one that was located downtown, wasn't curious about who these people were. Especially because you would hear, it's like, oh, Proud Boys and Antifa, there's going to be a riot downtown. It's like three blocks away from our school. And people are like, don't go off campus for lunch, like stuff like that. But we really have no idea what they are. So did you go to school? with anybody who was part of these 2020 riots? Yeah, I mean, at Lincoln, I know, like, um, multiple Lincoln people were part of the riots in at least some capacity. I'd say far more were just, like, peacefully demonstrating than partaking in anything actually violent. So to the extent you know anybody who fessed up to being part of the rioting and engaging in violence what was their do you have any understanding of their rationale no and i think a lot of times for young people i think a lot of times for a lot of people that were there was they just kind of wanted to be part of something that is like you're like doing whatever you want there's no rules like let's go break into macy's and do whatever instead of like having an actual motivation behind it to kind of spark change in any way like i'd say probably 80 percent of my class was at the protest in some capacity and probably 78% of those people were peacefully demonstrating with the rest of America. But it's just kind of the instigators and, I don't know, starters of things that wanted to go be part of something else. Maybe uh, sort of create meaning in their lives, almost. Yeah, and it's hard. It was in the summer. I think some people were just totally bored and had nothing to do. If you live, like, a 10-minute max right away, like, you could just head downtown for like some fun that night with really knowing there's going to be like no repercussions for anything. So I think it was just kind of a convergence of a variety of different factors that led a lot of people to show up there and start doing stuff when normally they wouldn't have been doing that. Did you get any encouragement from your teachers at Lincoln to demonstrate during 2020? It was hard because we were, they had us stop going to school on March 13th. And then for seniors, if you had above uh, 70% or something, they just gave you a pass. And I was done with school from March. So I really didn't. Yeah, so I didn't talk to my teachers again after that. So there were a lot of young people completely out of school. There's nothing to do, yeah. I think Lincoln took probably the most, I mean, speaking with my friends at college, they all had like online school until some certain date. For us, it was like, if you had a 70% or over, you're just done with high school, like, congrats. And if you don't have a 70%, you have until, like, August 21st to increase your grade to a 70%, and then you're done. So it was a very, like, lenient 
policy. I was happy with it, obviously, but we had a lot of free time. So really the only people who were attending school after March 2020 at Lincoln were people who were below a 70%, and I guess the only people who would have finished were people who would have stayed below a 70% till the end? Yeah, and I think, I'm not sure what it was like for the juniors and sophomores and freshmen who weren't seniors. I think for us seniors, they were like especially relaxed. Um, I'm not sure what the policy for the other ones were, but I don't know, I can't imagine it was too much. Did you have any indication of which way your teachers at Lincoln leaned politically? Yeah, I mean, of course. So, like, a photo came out, I'm not sure where it came from, and it was almost every teacher from our social studies department, like, in all black garb, and then holding a huge, like, tapestry sign that said, Tax the Rich. And it, like, looked like they were downtown with Antifa protesting. Uh, another one of my teachers, like, wore a communist button and had communist posters all over the room. Communist I mean, posters? Yeah. And, like, and wore communist like, shirts and stuff? Yeah, so it was, like, a little pin that he would wear on his suit. Like the suit. sickle or the hammer and sickle? Yeah. Or yeah. And the posters were, like, honestly, they weren't, like, very impressive. They're kind of cool because they're, like, vintage Soviet posters. But it is kind of that, uh, just that, the air of it. And then, of course, all the teachers are very environmentally minded, so that kind of comes out through that as well, of just, like, policies that are better for the environment or worse for the environment, and that kind of goes Democrat-Republican anyways. But, yeah, it was no secret in high school that, like, every teacher was pretty um, progressive. Did you have a single teacher... What about your science teachers? I mean, did you have a single teacher where you didn't you didn't know one way or another what their leanings were, their political leanings were? No, I don't I don't think I ever had like any kind of feelings of maybe this teacher is like conservative. It was all like very I mean, very clear cut, especially science. I feel like science has been so co-opted to mean like science equals Democrat and like progress and belief science and stuff like that, to the point where it's like they were very, very liberal and progressive, which I was, I'm always obviously fine with, but it is just interesting when it feels like everyone is kind of preaching the same message and then every student is thinking the same. It's easy to feel like, I don't know, kind of isolated in just your thinking and feel like you're doing something that you shouldn't be doing by, I don't know, not thinking the exact same as everyone else. So when did you start to feel like... I, based on what you're, I guess, based on what you're saying, it sounds like you took this class that taught you to argue the other side, and I'm imagining, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm imagining if I'm you, I'm listening to all these narratives around me, which are completely consistent, uh, un, black, pretty black and white, not a lot of nuance, not a lot of complexity, and I'm thinking about what the arguments are against the narratives that I'm hearing. Is that kind of how you were able to pop out of this bubble that you were in? 
Yeah, I'd say definitely. And I always hear things of like, I feel like conservatives have a pretty good understanding of the arguments of the other side, but Democrats don't necessarily understand the conservative position for a lot of things because it is so easy to just say racist or they just want to cut taxes or whatever it is. Um, so it definitely started with me just feeling like government was way too involved in everything. And like, I don't know why, what the obsession with government is when like every time I have to renew a passport or something, it's like a 10 hour ordeal. Why would we want government running more systems when they're pretty ineffective at it? Um, and so it started with just kind of a better understanding of like, I don't think government really runs that effectively and why do they have so much power over somewhat arbitrary things in our lives? And then that, as I've grown up, has kind of morphed into something a little bit more realistic of we need some facets of government in a lot of ways, but kind of live and let live, and let's not let the government kind of dictate every aspect of our lives for basically no reason and put all these people into power for life so that they can freeload off like taxpayer money. It's just never really been something I'm into. But yeah, pretty much started with just questioning what I had been taught my whole life. And at some point when you were at Lincoln, did you come to the conclusion that you were not in agreement with this narrative that you were, the dominant narrative that you were hearing over and over again? Yeah, and it was hard. I would tell my dad, um, like my parents obviously have different political views than me. We all kind of are pretty diverse in my family, but I told my dad, like, I wish I didn't feel this way. Like, I wish that I totally agreed with everything that I've been taught and had never even looked into anything because I think I would be, like, so much happier and a lot less distraught when I'm writing a paper and totally faking what my ideas are. Um, but I don't know if there was, like, any, like, come-to-Jesus moment exactly, but it was just over time, the more I found myself looking into stuff, the more I found myself disagreeing with other things that I previously just thought were normal. And then when you would do research, what sources would you say you turn to that enabled you to form the kinds of opinions that were contrary to this dominant far-left narrative you were hearing at your high school? Um, I mean, some of it sounds like pretty annoying, but just looking at the Constitution, even, I think was one of the first things that opened my eyes and looking into the founders and uh, different things that they had wrote that were kind of explaining their ideas behind the intention of the Constitution. Like but the Federalist like, like, Papers? Or... Yeah, the Federalist Papers, the Anti-Federalist Papers even more so kind of gave me a better perspective. But then looking at like different conservative commentators and conservative theorists and um, just getting a better idea of what the different ideas were. And then as I got older, I started looking on Twitter and just seeing different people who had different perspectives and that kind of again opened my eyes of some stuff I resonate with that they're saying other stuff I don't and like it's just fine and I'm just kind of figuring out what I think about all these different things so you really were able to immerse yourself in both sides because you were in this physical environment at school where there was one narrative coming at you constantly and consistently and then you were also able to use the research skills that you gained through this class that you took to figure out what the contrary arguments to those to that left narrative would be. Mm-hmm. And so what conservative commentators resonated with you early on? Um, I think it kind of varied in the 
like just see different quotes that I saw. I mean, I think a lot of the justices, like Clarence Thomas and even Scalia, were people that I saw their decisions on things and just kind of the way that they viewed and navigated issues in relation to the Constitution as something that I identified with a lot, and it made me rethink a lot of the kind of ideas of I had of the role both government should play and the Constitution should play. Uh, but then other commentators, there's like a news organization called Daily Wire. They have people like Ben Shapiro, who's obviously like very controversial, uh, but just other people through there. And I found at first I was kind of hate listening to a lot of the stuff to get an idea of what um, positions I could argue for my class and like, oh, listen to this, whatever. And I remember being scared of like, okay, why is some of this making sense to me and resonating with me when I'm supposed to be? think that he's like the worst most racist person in the world but yeah I think it probably stemmed from me being curious and trying to up my contrarian positions but turned into something actually real and the things that resonated the most with you it sounds like were the libertarian convictions the more philosophical aspects about limited role of government yeah and then a lot of the free speech stuff too I think as someone who had been told like it's not okay to even think this certain way, let alone put it into paper, hearing people say, like, that's kind of like, we have the marketplace of ideas for a reason, and the best ones are going to go to the top, and the worst should fall, and it's okay to still say these things, because it's, like, I think it leads to a lot of the, like, alt-right and uh, echo chambers online, when you suppress these ideas and tell people they should be, like, ashamed of certain things, I think it pushes people into, like, further corners of the internet where they're just hearing echo chamber ideas and then it leads people to become like super I don't know all right and racist and white supremacist in a more real way do you you know anybody who went through that evolution or what do you did you read about that what do you base that on yeah I mean I think there are ideas of like kind of a venture hero to the all-break pipeline um I think there's articles that have been come out about that and I remember I first when I was watching some of his stuff and reading different things, I was like, I don't want to get, become part of something that is like this horrible, I don't know, white supremacist deal when obviously those aren't my values. Uh, but I think it is kind of easy to feel like a resentment against kind of the entire liberal institution. Put yourself into these echo chambers online. I think there's different websites like 4chan or Reddit or whatever it is where you're like, it's just a group of people feeling resentment. And this is like in the same way as there's like sexually repressed men and it's like incel networks. It's like you just start echoing on top of each other and on top of each other because I feel like they feel like there isn't a place to voice other things. I mean, I'm sure it comes from a bunch of other things as well. I'm not an expert on like the all right pipeline, but I think that is probably part of it. I think the far left engages in that as well. And what's so interesting to me when I hear you speak about that is I think about the fact that really prior to prior to 2020, I consumed all left-wing media. That was all I consumed. And I remember listening to a podcast called, well, it's a show on NPR called Code Switch. And they were interviewing the author of a book called In Defense of Looting. And I just remember, but they, they, not in a curious way, almost in a, they were treating this woman as a, 
somebody who had a pretty interesting argument that may have a fair amount of validity to it. And that, and that was the assumption that was sort of, it seemed like that was the reporter's assumption going into it, as opposed to what I would think would be the rational response to somebody who wrote a book like that, which is to say, you know, to ask them questions, to really challenge them and to ask them questions about, challenge them with data. Like, look at all these black businesses in Kenosha that were destroyed by these rioters and these looters. Um, really more serious questions like that, whether illegal acts can really bring about the change that you want and not just small illegal acts, but really big gigantic ones that the entire public is looking at aghast, like looting Louis Vuitton. Is that really a political act? There was no real pushback on this person. And I felt like I was, it's not as bad as white supremacy. Obviously, I think white supremacy is worse than stealing. But it was certainly leading me down this bizarre rabbit hole that I didn't want to be in. Where, where I was, I thought, well, maybe looting is a political. I mean, you know, I, I started having these machinations where I was thinking, well, you know, maybe looting and rioting and destroying the federal courthouse is really the only way to bring about change because everybody's asleep and that's what we need to do to end racism. I mean, I just, I found myself engaging in all these machinations that I didn't necessarily, I don't think I, it did, they didn't resonate internally, but I, I was certainly headed down that other rabbit hole, which is, it's violence. I mean, it's not, it's, it's property destruction. A lot of those munitions that they were throwing at the courthouse hit police, hit bystanders, hurt people. It is violence. It's probably not worth worse than white supremacy unless it's murder or something, but there is a left rabbit hole that you can also fall down that I think is, can, can be incredibly destructive. Yeah, and I think a lot of that is like a product of social media, obviously, where it like continually tailors. I mean, if you use Twitter for any amount of time, you'll realize that you somewhat quickly stop seeing stuff that you're not seemingly interested in. And like it tailors stuff to you so that you're pretty much only seeing stuff that you're in agreement with. And that was something that I was definitely like determined to avoid. But I knew that it was somewhat easy. I couldn't isolate myself from any kind of liberal ideas when I'm living in Portland, Oregon going to school at a public high school and then my family even has different ideas than myself but yeah I think it is um, easy for people now to become kind of just engrossed by their political ideologies and that being like a factor feature of themselves more so than I guess anything else did you do you consume today do you consume any media that you would consider left-wing yeah They taught us turn on all your news notifications so it doesn't matter what what the source is just turn all of them on on your phone so i get news notifications from cnn fox news from any outlet um so i consume all of those and then i have a wall street journal subscription so i read that most days i don't know if people would consider it left wing but it's certainly like a mainstream media 
And then just in class, a lot of times we're tasked with reading articles and my parents have the TV on and it's not Fox News. So I see stuff all the time, but um, on Twitter and stuff, I'd say it's mostly more conservative. I think that's really impressive. And I think that you are in the minority of Gen Z kids who are or young adults who are consuming media these days. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, and I think it's hard with, um, like, Instagram infographics and stuff that people post on their stories, which, if you're older, you might not be able to kind of identify with it. But people kind of put out their own versions of news, and it's, like, someone like me behind a computer just creating a story. I think a lot of us came up with, like, the Renton House trial and other stuff like that, which obviously just because you're my age, it doesn't mean you can't put out something unbiased and, like, that cool. But I think a lot of it is just leads to people seeing, like, a small blurb on Instagram and feeling like that's the whole story and then just posting it and that's where a lot of people get their news from now really so you think do you think people who in their early 20s get their news from their friends instagram stories yeah i'd say especially college-age kids like myself if you asked them i'd say 50 percent of them would say that majority of their news comes from like reposted infographics that's pretty much like all day, every day is different social issues being posted on people's Instagram stories. Yeah, and it's like why using skincare is problematic. It's like the most like niche things that really offer nothing to anybody, but I think people through posting it feel like they're like morally superior. I'm the I'm the better person because I don't do XYZ, but like no one really cares, I don't think, or takes any kind of meaning or anything away from it that people just post it in. Was, was that a real Instagram story about skincare? I mean, I'm sure maybe somewhere out there, but no, it was just something. Okay, that's really good. It's pretty ridiculous stuff like that, where it's like, I don't know where this is coming from or how this is even seen as being a minor issue when there's like actual issues going on. But like, sure. Wow, that's fascinating. Do you have any friends who? Instagram stories aside, actually consume news media the way that you do where, where they have, so. have notifications I mean, I from both s- sides yeah I mean I don't want to sound like I think I'm like anything special at consuming I think it's just because you have so much more access to like liberal media or even mainstream media um but no I mean I know that there's certain kind of conservatives on my campus and I'm sure that they do a similar thing that I do just because you kind of have to in order to really get anything that's conservative so you're at a school in the south are you friends with any of the people you would characterize as conservative no i wouldn't say so i mean i have one friend who's like minorly deviates from kind of the like intense liberal agenda i don't know what other word to use and she's like very fearful about anyone finding out but no most people are very um liberal and I think kind of that's a product of like 80% of the students being from the Northeast so it isn't like I'm going to school with a bunch of country people from North Carolina it's more so with like wealthier people from the Northeast. So what was the first presidential election that you voted in? Yeah the first election I was able to vote in was the 2021 um, presidential election. And in 2016, when Trump came on the scene, 
were you able to form any kind of political opinions that informed you about what way you probably would have voted had you been of voting age? Yeah, I would, no chance I would have voted for Trump. I think I would have, um, I guess maybe voted for Clinton, but certainly not voted for Trump. Um, at the time I had very, like, the same ideas as pretty much everyone else I knew about him, that he was, like, a racist and how is he even in this position and I was as stunned as anyone when he won. So I wouldn't have. No chance for to vote for him in 2016, I don't think. And then who did you vote for in 2020? In 2020, I mean, I'm not super proud to say it, but I voted for Trump. I think I have reasoning behind it, but yeah, that was the vote that I cast. Well, tell us about that. What changed your mind? Yeah, so I think, and I don't know if there's other people out there. I think there are other people out there that feel similar to, similarly to me. Knowing that my vote is being cast from Oregon, so I'm not really swaying the election either way. I don't think Trump is a stand-up citizen. I don't think he's a good person even. But just kind of a rejection of everyone is telling me, like, I have to think this certain way. I can't have any of my own ideas. I should be shamed for even, like, considering voting for Trump. All this stuff like that. I mean, to me, it was kind of like my version of just trying to show people that there are conservatives who exist. And, like, there's Oregon, as much as you may want it to be, like, 100% votes for Trump, there's people out there with other ideas, and, like, by trying to shame people and make them embarrassed for even having these ideas, like, I'm not going to be shamed into that. I'm going to vote for who I want to vote for. So I kind of threw my vote to Trump just as an idea of knowing he's probably, he's not going to win Oregon, so whatever. But I would like to increase the, like, physical vote count number just to show that, like, I don't know, I don't want to be bossed around by everyone else. So it was almost a contrarian or heterodox act of protest your vote for Trump yeah and like when I say it it's like okay like who cares but for myself I just felt like I don't want to vote for Biden I don't like Biden I don't want to not vote there's no really third party candidate that I enjoy either uh this is my first election and I'm gonna vote for Trump because honestly I I didn't think that his policy the past four years were bad I think I'd rather have some mean tweets and some other rash decisions than Biden, who's been in government for 47 years, hasn't really done much of anything, and is probably just going to be bossed around by his, like, upper cabinet officials. So it was both in protest and in the fact that I didn't think that Trump's policies were very bad, aside from some of them. What policies of Trump's did you dislike? I mean, I think that at times it was just executed in, like, a super heavy-handed manner. I definitely don't resonate or agree with the obsession with the border wall and immigration. Like, I'm not someone who feels like we need to make the barriers to immigration as difficult as possible. Um, I think that, like, the transgender military ban and the, like, quote-unquote Muslim ban, I think multiple things were, especially the transgender ban, I just don't agree with that, but the, like, Muslim ban... We've seen Biden do kind of similar things, but just executed in a totally different way to where it doesn't lead to the same reaction and it doesn't have the same connotations of, like, Trump is banning Muslim people from coming to the U.S. So, I mean, I could probably go on and on about policies with his that I disagree with to some extent, but I think in large part it was fine. Like, I think he did a fine job. Like, inflation was down, unemployment was down, and there's peace, more peace in the Middle East than there has been. So I don't know. I just felt like it was for every one positive thing he did, like there was 10 horrible things and bad tweets that were totally blown up. And that was all people ever focused on and probably couldn't name 
five positive things that had happened when really there were a lot of positive changes throughout those four years. So socially, is it fair to say that you're left-leaning? It sounds like you're very left-leaning in regard to LGBTQ rights. Very. And I'd say, like, pretty much every social issue. I don't really uh, take super conservative positions on those, but I think that kind of stems back from the libertarian argument. Even if I don't personally, like, agree with something or whatever it may be, there's pretty much no instance where I think the government should boss you around or force you to do X, Y, and Z. You're not marry X, Y, and Z. Instead, it's just pretty much live and let live. So if, in the, if based on the 2020 election, you had told your gay friends, hypothetically, and I know you, you don't feel safe doing that, but if you had told them that you voted for Trump, do you, feel, do you feel like a twinge of guilt at all imagining how that conversation would go down? Like, do you feel like they would feel hurt by that? Like, you're, one of their arguments might be you're hurting me by voting for Trump? Yeah, and I think, I mean, it's like I'm not proud of my vote for Trump. It's not something that I, like, am excited by or obviously even tell people. But um, I think if I had the chance to explain to them, like, I understood that Trump wasn't going into office based on my vote at all because I live in Oregon. Um, But, yeah, I think that would be a difficult conversation and one that I guess I wouldn't like to have because, but at the same time, it's like I, people vote for candidates every day where you don't agree with every one of their policies. And it's kind of just a weighing of the factors of would I rather go with Biden and these are his policies and these are the ones I don't agree with, or would I rather go with Trump and these are his policies and then this is his personality that I really don't agree with in a lot of his actions. So I think it's a weighing of both factors for anyone you vote for. So you're never going to find a candidate who's like a perfect person you agree with everything they say and do. Um, It's really tricky, right? Because if you had that conversation, your argument would basically be that that's it's not my issue. It's not my big issue. My big issue is government in your business, and I wanted to vote for the candidate that I thought would provide the least amount of unnecessary governmental interference in everybody's lives. Yeah, and I think that there's, like, when Trump was elected in 2016 and all throughout the four years, it's like this bit this uh, fear that we're going to go back to, like, 1960s, like, pre-civil rights era, things without acknowledging that there's things in place to stop that. Like, Trump, he's di- he did things unilaterally, like, I'm guessing the transgender military bill and stuff like that, but, like, we have multiple systems of checks and balances that prevent different actions. Like, we've seen Trump's actions be tried by um, the Supreme Court and different stuff like that. Like, he's not a dictator to where, if he's in office, then, like, all of our civil freedoms and every like minority groups ability to do anything goes out the window so I think also that was just like I kind of felt like Trump doesn't have all the power in the world he's more like a figurehead and someone who I guess tries to spearhead policies on behalf of Congress I mean it's such a difficult conversation no yeah and I think it is really hard and I think that's why like you just have to weigh a lot of factors and think about what is what are you comfortable with doing like I guess um, after January 6th, like, who knows if I would have been comfortable voting for Trump. Like, it's just a variety of things that come into it. And, like, not, I don't think 
people should be pressured either way of this isn't an acceptable candidate to vote for because of X, Y, and Z, unless they're, like, genuinely doing something that's, like, racist or white supremacist, and you could argue all those things for Trump. But I think for myself, I just, I didn't want to feel pigeonholed into, I don't like Biden, but I have to vote for him because that's, like, the thing that I'm supposed to do. And I wanted to feel, like, some sense of agency over my politics. I think that's what a lot of people feel like. Like, I'm having to write all these papers and do all these things just to cater to kind of the entire institutions, all the major institutions that are completely run by, like, liberal ideas. I'd like to have my vote, and one thing I can do, just have at least some agency as to the ideas that I actually resonate with. So, I mean, yeah, I think those conversations would be really hard, but it is, like, I guess a sacrifice that I was willing to make in the fact that we all have our votes and can cast them. This is the way I'm going on it. But... I don't know if it's necessarily, yeah, the most empathetic decision I could have made to different communities. Your voting for Trump was almost a way of expressing your, well, it seems to me it was a way of, tell me if this is incorrect, of expressing your authenticity because you're not able, either growing up in Portland or now in North Carolina in college, you're not able to be your authentic self in, it sounds like really any other sphere except for in your family home. Is that correct? Yeah, I like it. I would just like to underscore, like, yeah, I'm not, I think there is kind of an association of anyone who votes for Trump is like a Trumpy and a Trump supporter and wears a red hat and idolizes him. Like, I don't. I think he's like a very faulted person and has a lot of horrible traits and really shouldn't be spearheading like the American Christian movement when he really doesn't demonstrate any of those traits. But it is more, yeah, just myself trying to, I guess, take back something of, like, I want there to be numbers in the Oregon voting numbers of people who were conservative from Portland County, from Multnomah County, of just, like, we all don't think the same, and can we at least, like, acknowledge and allow for spaces where people are having regular conversations about these topics without having to feel totally ashamed? You must feel very suffocated. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it doesn't bother me, I guess, as much as it would if I didn't have at least a few people around me like my family if I felt like shamed by them for things that I thought um but it just gets exhausting especially in school to feel like you're just writing these things to cater to ideas and if you deviate even just a little bit your grade's going to reflect that and your teacher will probably think ill of you so it's like okay I'll just write this and use the same kind of woke speak language and um talk about I don't know whatever other thing that they want me to talk about just to get the grade when it doesn't really I feel like I'm not really learning much from it or thinking very deeply about different topics. Tell me about that. Is there a paper that you're thinking about in particular? I mean, like in my freshman year of college, I had to write a letter to someone who had done something racist in front of me. And so like pretend like I'm writing a letter to them and tell them like what they did that was racist and then educate them about it. And like for myself, I couldn't really think of something racist that had happened in front of me. I mean, like I do think that systemic racism is real in different instances like that I've seen, but like I haven't been in a situation where something racist happens in front of me. So basically having to like conjure up, I forget what I even wrote about, some fake scenario of like my grandma saying something like mildly offensive to someone. Having to like write this whole thing and educate my grandma, pretend, it just like, I don't know, it just feels like, there's not a lot of thought put into anything except for kind of regurgitating the different, like, things that we read and then we just have to put it back on the paper back to the teacher. So, yeah. And when you say woke speak, what do you mean by that? 
I mean, like, for some reason my mind's going a little blank on it, but just the, there's like a way of speaking where it's like you're saying a lot of nothing and you're always like kind of towing the line of just these random things, not wanting to offend anyone. So like writing like in my class, I would write like W-O-M-X-N, like women, because I guess then you're like including everyone um, regardless of orientation and stuff like that. So it's just kind of a way of speaking where you're like, I don't know, talking about everything and nothing at the same time without trying to offend anyone and using like every possible term to include every person. It's like a lot of like intersectional language, I'd say. Do you use the term BIPOC or POC? In my writings, I'd always do by POC. Oh, by hyphen POC? No, BIPOC. Yeah, okay. It's certainly not challenging you. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's like, I think I'm just so used to it. Like, it's not, it doesn't feel like woe is me at all that I have to do it. But it is just, I'm excited to get into the real world to some extent and be able to kind of just navigate and live in the world without feeling like I have to appease these different professors and can't write actually what I think and just have to kind of fall into line with everyone else. But it yeah, just seemed like if it were interesting or challenging, and you wanted to engage in a true analysis, an authentic analysis of any kind of topic, that's impossible. And so it seems pretty dumbed down to me because really you figured out a way to just sort of game this system, which doesn't strike me as, for somebody as intellectually gifted as you, too hard to do. papers Persuade this professor to give you a better grade. 
No, yeah, definitely. And he, I knew that even just him seeing that would be like an indication to him that like I'm with you and I'm writing this paper and I'm like woke, I'm superior in the same way that you are. So like, like yeah, like I'm with you essentially. And writing that way, I mean, it proved effective and yeah. And you don't feel any, I mean, I'm feeling nauseous just like hearing this. You don't feel any kind of angst? I mean, maybe you do and maybe that's why you voted for Trump. I. Do you feel yeah, any kind I of think, angst at all about this? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe that's the way that it came out. But uh, it's just, for me, it's like I think about it as just kind of a game. I think a lot of people think of school as a game, but it's just a little bit different because I have to, like, basically, like, rethink what I actually think. Um, but, no, I mean, it's fine. If anything, it requires, I think, sometimes less substance because you know if you just say, like, these few talking points every time, and you use this language, they're gonna like. There's no way that they can't agree with you unless my grammar's off or something like that. But they're not gonna like turn their back on their own values and give me a bad grade on a paper about like I don't know gender and racial inequality if I'm saying the exact things that I know they want to hear. So, so I mean, it, it really makes doesn't require any thought whatsoever. You just sort yeah. of. It's almost like the Babylon Bee or parody of yeah. the left but you will express it as authentic and then you get the, you get A's, I presume. Mm -hmm. And that's, yeah, that's honestly what it feels like. It's sometimes when I'm writing it, I'm like, okay, like, this is hilarious, but it is what it is when we submit it. And yeah, so far it's worked out very well for me. It's almost like you're in a writer's room writing a Portlandia episode. Mm -hmm. And it's just, I don't know, it's crazy. You hear a lot about like, I don't know, the wokeness of college campuses and safe spaces and everything like that. But I think I would feel differently if I hadn't gone to Lincoln and already been exposed to that. And, like, I know other people who went to big private schools or something else feel like the teachers have, like, strong political leanings at my college. But for myself, it's, like, honestly nothing compared to what I feel like I've already been experienced to, exposed to. So do you think what's going on at college is a less do you think college your college experience is less woke than your experience at Lincoln I'd say maybe slightly but I think going into it I was expecting that it would be a a lot different than it is I think I thought that college is like you're entering the space where everyone's thinking about everything and you're so grown up and whatever else but you realize it's kind of just like high school but boarding school and you're living somewhere else and it's all kind of the same but I also thought that going in the South would make a difference, and you realize that it really doesn't. I'm not going to, like, a small Southern school in the middle of nowhere, so it's pretty much the same. But I would say it's less so than um, Lincoln. Are you just profoundly disappointed? Yeah, in some ways, but, I mean, I, like, I was thinking about doing political science as a major, and I think after my first semester, I had declared that, and I was like, I just can't put myself through this so I'm going to do something else that maybe I could apply to political science later in life um so I think it's that and like now purposefully taking classes like business classes that you can't really put this lens on and that it's like it's just going to be have to be taught in a certain way so I think I would be disappointed if I forced myself into some area that I couldn't really have any like agency over but it's just kind of picking and choosing what is going to be okay and what is going to be like a little bit too much of like faking it for me to put myself through I'm interested in that because I feel like 
NPR especially can turn any topic into one of oppression and identity politics. And I wonder if, have you experienced that at all in your non-political science classes where, say in a business class, a, what seems like a neutral issue is turned into one of oppression and colonization and identity politics? It's difficult to say. I mean, I take a lot of like journalism and media classes, and that, of course, is like like the crusaders of the world. Like The journalists are very like left-leaning. Um, so you see different things about that. But in my business class, I don't think so yet, just because I've had a lot of like older professors and other people who seem kind of out of the loop on some stuff. But I wouldn't be surprised if it comes up. Let me revisit something you said earlier, which is, uh, you said you did vote for Trump. You're not necessarily proud of it. Uh, one aspect, one safeguard, uh, you would say, uh, for your vote for Trump, and one one way in which you felt safe voting for Trump was that there are all these checks and balances in our system. So, I mean, I, do you remember people were saying, I don't know if you remember during the 2016 election, they were saying, oh, this is just, this is... Uh, Germany pre-Nazism. He's going to be the next Hitler. Before we know it, we're all going to be reading Mein Kampf. Do, do you hear any of that narrative? Yeah, completely. I hear that a lot. And so were you sort of thinking, well, this is, actually, this is nothing like Nazi Germany. He's nothing like Hitler because we already have all these systems in place to keep a Hitler from coming to power? Yeah, and I just kind of tried to think back and I'd hear people kind of pose the question at times of, Think about your daily life now in 2019 compared to what it was in 2015. Has anything really changed for you in like a tangible way that Trump caused? And it's like, really, no. I think there's big news stories at times, and for certain groups, I'm sure that there are. But I'd say for the majority of America, like Trump, the main power Trump has is like manipulating the media narrative and like being on the news at all times. But he really doesn't do that much. I think Congress does a lot more and the Supreme Court does more. And Trump is just kind of a figurehead for the U.S., which he's like definitely not the best at that. But it's just like our daily life is still the same as it was pretty much four years ago. And I don't see that changing if he went back. I guess I mostly agree with you, although some certain things come to mind. And it's more, up to me, at least from my perspective, it's more about the far, well, maybe not far left, but close to far left. So to me, it seems like there's a continuum on the left, Antifa being, probably being the furthest left, like so left that they're right. In other words, so left that they're anarchist, that they're, they're their own form of libertarian, right? Because they want to tear down the state. So they're so far left, they're practically off the spectrum. And then close to Antifa, but not Antifa, I'd put maybe a lot of Portland government. And I think that there was a response to Trump from that contingent, the far left but non-Antifa contingent to Trump. People call it Trump derangement syndrome, and that might be the right term to use, but it seems like a lot of things are different today because of Trump, but not because of Trump making me do things or or hurting people in a particular way. 
more things like he refused to wear a mask. And so Oregon, for a very long time, had an outdoor mask mandate. And they still have an indoor mask mandate. And there, I think one of six states that, I mean, the majority of states don't have an indoor mask mandate. And I think that's a response to Trump. I don't think it has anything to do with science. Yeah, and I, I agree with that for sure. And I was hoping for, like, people always said the return to normalcy and stuff like that. Like, I'm just going to vote for Biden because I want things to be normal again. I don't want this, like, same political divide. And when Biden was elected, I was like, I'm fine with that. But, yeah, I think that Trump had negative social effects for sure also. So I don't... I mean, I don't know that that's... I. I guess if I'm a typical Portlander, I'm saying that is Trump's fault because he sh- the, the scientific consensus at the time, we didn't have any mask studies, was that in regard to the coronavirus, was that you put on the mask, he refused to put on the mask, that was bad public health messaging because he wasn't listening to experts. And I think that this Trump derangement syndrome is where this follow the science garbage is coming from on the left wherein they're continuing to mask even though the majority of states are not and they're doing just fine some maybe even better and they're instead of following the science it's really more about just do the opposite of what trump did or does or says no totally and even like i think you could extrapolate it even more broadly to like do the opposite of what the republicans are doing like i think for a lot of people it's become a political statement of I wear my mask, like, no matter what. And I always, if you're not wearing your mask, like, can you move away from me? And stuff like that to where it's, they could tell us tomorrow that masks do nothing. And I think a lot of people would keep theirs on just to kind of prove that they're, like, good, upstanding citizens who care about fighting the pandemic. So I think, yeah, I don't think Trump's COVID times were at all the highlight of his presidency. I think that was probably uh, contributed a lot to why he lost. But... I think definitely people now have it in their minds to just do the opposite of whatever Trump and the conservative party more broadly does. Well, it's so interesting that you said that because it seems like the far left is finally admitting that cloth masks might not do anything. And it's just absolutely fascinating to me how hard it is for Portland and progressives to give up the cloth mask. Yeah. It's, and it's fascinating. Yeah, and a few times this summer, it's like there was, I think at a few times there was no outdoor mask mandate. And so I went to like an outdoor concert, and you get there and everyone still has their mask on outside. So you're like, essentially shamed into just putting yours back on and sitting there so you don't come off as like, I don't know, some Trump-supporting anti-mask, anti-vax person, which is, like, it is what it is, I guess. I think everyone, everything in Oregon, I'm like, I guess it is what it is, but... Well, it's fascinating because, so, this is from Wednesday, December 22nd, 2021, and it's from Yahoo... It's just Yahoo News, so it's just sort of a bland news source. But CNN's, I don't know if you heard about this, right before Christmas, CNN's medical analyst, Dr. Lena Wen, said cloth masks are useless in the fight against the spread of Omicron, encouraging viewers to wear a three-layer medical mask. 
and that blew my that blew my mind. Mm-hmm. Did had you heard about that? Yeah, and that was like some of the same things that Fauci was alluding to back in March or in April of 2020. Of like, I don't know what these like putting a like kind of a dirty rag over your face is gonna do unless you're wearing like an N95 or a KN95 or even maybe a medical mask. And he didn't but, want us wearing those, so he yeah. told us not to wear masks at all. Yeah, and then it's like you kind of wonder where like the anti-science sentiment comes from when the message has been completely flip-flopped throughout like the entire pandemic. But I mean, well, and there's no accountability, like, right? There's no. Yeah. You would expect it to flip-flop because we're learning more as we go. But nobody goes back and says that information was wrong. I know more now. Here's what changed my mind. And here's what I now believe is the correct thing to do. Nobody has, nobody is doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like, I don't know, I think people are becoming, you'd think that people are becoming more and more annoyed by it. Like at least where I go to school, it seems like the citizens have just abandoned masks altogether. In my school, I still have to wear them anytime I'm indoors. But in Oregon, it feels like people are just ready to keep it on their face for life, which is honestly like whatever, I guess, but it is a little bit just weird how quickly people have adopted them, even without being required to wear them. They just permanently choose to wear them at all times. So at school, you wear a mask indoors, but North Carolina does not have, it certainly doesn't have an outdoor mask mandate. Does it have an indoor mask mandate? No, and even stores where I think that they like strongly encourage their visitors to use them, uh, certain members of the local community don't. So it's a culture shock coming back to Portland. Is it a culture shock coming back to Portland? Um, I'd say so. Just like the, especially like the fearfulness of other people, like seeing people like veer way off the side of the street if you're walking outside with no mask on and stuff like that. And just at the store, staying so far apart from each other. It feels like in other places I've been, I mean, I spent summer in Alabama and people are pretty much ready to just get back to real life and behave normally again. But Oregon, it feels very, um, very much afraid of everyone still. And like, I don't know, like bumping into someone might result in like your last breath when, I don't know. Have you, did you work downtown at all between high school and college or, or in high school? Do you have any, I, I know, your parents are professionals and they're downtown, but do you have, do you personally, were you compelled to go downtown at any point? Downtown Portland. I would get lunch with my sister a few times who also works downtown, but it ended up being like a somewhat unpleasant experience just with the state that downtown's in. So we kind of stopped doing that, but I drive through it frequently, but don't spend much time out of the car. So what, what were your lunch experiences like when you were downtown Portland? Yeah, like the, it was probably within like 10 steps of getting out of the car and someone, I'm assuming on some kinds of drugs, is like taking up the entire sidewalk, like kind of moving pretty rapidly back and forth and then like lunges at the two of us and starts swearing at us and um, calling us names and then is like essentially running the other way away from us. But it's just still kind of startling when, it's just me and my sister downtown and then like probably a block later it's more people just talking to us and 
getting somewhat in your face. Like, I've been in situations, obviously, where people are just friendly and asking if they have money, and obviously I don't mind that. But it feels now like people have become a lot more emboldened and just randomly enjoy kind of messing with you or talking to you or even trying to scare you a little bit. I don't know where that comes from, but it feels like they've definitely become um, a bigger part of society instead of before. I felt like they were more just you see them, but you wouldn't really hear much from them. It's so interesting you said that because this summer, just this last summer, I was on Northeast MLK coming out of an appointment and a guy who was clearly had some either drug or mental health or both issues was physically sort of nearby, which in Portland is not atypical. And in fact, if it's like spiders. They say, what do they say? Like there are 50 spiders within a hundred feet of you at all times. It's sort of like that with the mentally ill and the drug addicted. And I didn't think he had regarded me or noticed my presence at all. And we were standing at the same corner waiting for uh, the walk sign. And all of a sudden he jumped right in front of me, put his where so that his face was really close to me. Like you were, like if you're, with your friends, your sister, and you want to really scare the crap out of them, and jumped in front of me with his face close to me and just started to scream. And it was so weird because I I had expected him to do that because I've I've just worked downtown for so long. And I wasn't downtown. I wasn't even downtown. I mean, it's in every quadrant of the city, right? I mean, maybe less so in the West Hills, but in Northeast MLK is not immune to what's going on downtown. And I, I didn't even, I don't think I even flinched. And he was upset. He had some faculties about him because he was upset that I didn't flinch. And he said, didn't that scare you? And I said, no, I lived in Portland my whole life. Yeah. I mean, that was just what came to mind. Like, why would that scare me? This is typical. Yeah, I think it's, like difficult because sometimes they're like taking up the entire sidewalk and I don't want to like alienate them or make them feel like I'm scared of them if I step off the sidewalk but then if I don't I feel like we're gonna like run a collision course and then it's like I just don't know how to navigate certain situations and I'm not I don't know I'm kind of a fearful person at times so I found it easiest to just kind of prevent myself from getting into certain experiences at times but it's, it's really hard to get physical distance between those people though because yeah. because the homeless are taking up the entire sidewalk so a lot of the time to avoid them you have to step in the street into traffic no yeah that's and then it's like the worst when like you're kind of walking by maybe like a group of tents or a group of people who are all there and it's like very obvious if you're stepping off to move farther from them but at the same time like it's not my goal to like make people like dehumanize people or make them feel like I'm afraid of them but really it's just like past experiences have kind of led me to feel like I'd rather avoid an uncomfortable encounter right now but well obviously yeah. you're empathetic to them and you recognize that they're suffering but at least for me I feel very comfortable saying that I'm afraid of them because they're unpredictable and I don't Portland is not a safe city I mean, I don't, I really don't know what, what they're going to do. Yeah. And like in middle school, my friends and I would walk around downtown. We'd walk around Pioneer Place alone at night with just me and another friend. And now even 
I can't imagine my sister and I walking alone downtown at night and feeling like secure and comfortable, let alone like a 12 year old girl doing that. So it is just kind of sad to feel like actual, like, I don't know, regular civilians like the rest of us have become kind of the minority on the streets compared to other people who are kind of wreaking a little more havoc and they feel more emboldened and more comfortable than we do. But I don't know. I said a lot of things. I feel like, what can I do? Like, it just feels like it's only going downwards and I just have to pray and hope for the best that something, a miracle will happen. When did that change? I mean, you talked about middle school, but when was it that you noticed a shift in Portland? I'd say most noticeably after probably 2020 and especially going away and going to a place where even spending the summer in uh, Alabama, it's like one of the lowest income, most impoverished areas. And you don't see this like at all. You don't see anything even remotely like this. Um, and then coming back to Portland, I feel like I just noticed really stark differences, probably COVID and beyond. I've seen it, but I know it's just been on a downward slope. So when you say you don't see it in Alabama, are you, tell me about that. You mean you don't see deranged people walking around and screaming? You don't see tents? You don't see, I mean, do you see homeless? Yeah, and like you see homeless people, I'd say not as many, but I think it's kind of what I associated homeless people with when I was even younger, which is just people who are maybe drunk sleeping in a park, or they're drunk sleeping on the side of the road, or they're just like standing around panhandling and maybe drinking or something like that. I think Portland has like been a really big convergence of like serious mental illness and then other drugs that are like um, like schizophrenia inducing, like stuff like crack and meth and things that are people are on where they're not just like mellowed out laying down in the park anymore, but Fentanyl. instead they're like running around in people's faces. So I think that is probably a large part of it is just the types of addiction and what is causing people to be homeless. But it just doesn't feel so in your face in other places that I've been. So when you were in Alabama, what city were you in? I was in Birmingham. Did you feel safer than you do in Portland? Yeah, I certainly felt safer. I mean, there's a, people always associate everything in Alabama is like, Confederate flags, like backwards, everything, whatever. But I mean, Birmingham's a large city that voted overwhelmingly for Biden. Just to contextualize it, if you haven't been, like it's pretty much like any other major city. But I mean, there's a much higher police presence there, so you're not just feeling like you could like get beat up and lay there until some random pedestrian comes and finds you. Um, but then there's also a lot stronger religious fabric, which I think has something to do with it. There's just people out there constantly. Um, providing resources to people but yeah and I think the culture also people are just friendlier there and don't seem so I don't know scared of everyone and angry I'd say like seven out of ten homeless people would say hi to you in just a friendly way yeah and I think like Portland obviously has like a dedicated group of people trying to like spearhead this but Alabama just felt like somehow or for some reason things were more effective there and having places where people could go pick up their mail and file for social security cards and um, just an area where people could get themselves on their feet aside from just providing them food really? and then also like addiction treatments and stuff like that. But it's just, I feel like in Portland sometimes we see it as they just need warm meals, which is obviously beneficial, but I think a lot of it is a lot more deep-rooted than that and it takes more than just giving someone a hot lunch every day to kind of cure anything. 
So do you feel like Alabama's social services were actually more functional to the extent that they seem to address some of the root causes of homelessness, like addiction and lack of um, mental health resources and just inability to function, basically. I mean, I guess if you have, if you have, if you're able to figure out your social security card and get mail, it's easier to get a job and maybe have some hope that you could get a job and that hope might enable you to seek treatment. Yeah, and it's hard to say just from like my small corner of where I was, but I volunteered uh, a lot in Portland too, especially in issues surrounding homelessness. And it did feel like there was more traction and people were able to be in the program for longer times and allow that to like advance them and get them somewhere. But at the same time, like Alabama is really regressive in a lot of other ways, like having a super high tax on groceries and other essential goods and stuff like that. Like it's like a 6% tax on groceries, which is kind of unheard of in a lot of other places. Completely screwed up. Yeah. So I think like the religious element of it people kind of take it more upon themselves to go campaign things but again it's the city i'm not sure how much the city is doing to combat it this is just my armchair psychology at work but i wonder if part of it is when you talked about the social and religious fabric i wonder if part of it is in alabama that starts from day one day one is the social and religious fabric and the expectations and just basic sort of rules to live by. Whereas in Portland, I don't know if you feel this way. I know you went to church growing up, but I certainly felt like, and and then later when I moved to Seattle in sixth grade for a few years, I certainly felt in Portland and Seattle like I was a weirdo because I went to church. Yeah, I'd say I was probably one of the only people I only knew one other person who went to church regularly in high school. Um, and even I'm not like, I'm not an extremely devout person, but I just think I was looked at as kind of like, I wore a cross necklace once and people were confused by it. But yeah, I think that is definitely part of it. It's just not having that as an element of daily life here as it is in Alabama. Well, I, I mean, I think in Portland, the assumption is if you go to church, you're an evangelical whack job and, yeah, and you're, you're a trumper and you're and you're stupid yeah that's what I was gonna say I think it's again looked at as like you're so, like you're so dumb like how can you even believe that and again it's the it's association of all things that make up someone who is a Trump supporter which is like being religious then it's like okay you must be conservative you can't believe in science and also go to church like just random sayings like that which are like okay but yeah so going back to your, I want to revisit your argument about it's one of the things that made you feel better about voting for Trump is all these checks and balances in our system. And you mentioned the Supreme Court. I think some people would push back on that and say, well, hey, look at all the justices he appointed to the Supreme Court. He sure, sure changed the fabric of the Supreme Court to the extent that it probably couldn't check and balance him as well. What would you say to somebody who made that argument? Yeah, I'd say 
I think that it was like a huge anomaly that he was able to put so many justices on the court, but at the same time, it's kind of doing a disservice to the understanding of their position as someone who's on the Supreme Court for life. I don't know how strongly people adhere to like Trump appointed me, so I have to go with every conservative position. We've seen like plenty of justices who were appointed by someone who's more liberal and then ended up being more conservative and vice versa. And the understanding that these are like scholarly judges who have spent their life studying this, this text, and I don't know how much of it is like trying to please Trump as rather than doing what it says in the Constitution and interpreting it in the best way that they know how to. So I don't know, I think that is like a somewhat valid argument, but it is hard when I have faith in the justices that are appointed that they're going to interpret the Constitution correctly instead of trying to please some one-term, appease some one-term president who has no power over them anymore. As a, as a female, how did you feel about the, the Brett Kavanaugh appointment? What were your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what year that was in, I forget, but I went to the walkout for it. I, there, we had walkouts like, once a semester, and I would pretty much go to any of them regardless of what I thought, just because I got to miss school, but I remember going to the walkout and chanting along with everyone that Kavanaugh has got to go. Um, Did you feel that way, though, or were you just doing that to avoid getting uh, either literally or, or figuratively beat up? Yeah, I mean, I'm always, again, like, with the more liberal and social issues, like, I am, uh, I think more likely to side with the victims and the accusers than other people who consider themselves conservative. So I definitely wanted to hear everything out. I don't know if I had super strong opinions on it. Um, I don't think I like Brett Kavanaugh that much. I don't think I liked him at the time, but I didn't feel like enough evidence came out to feel that he couldn't be on the Supreme Court. But um, I, I guess it's just something that we'll never know. And I don't know if, I don't know why she would make that up. So I'm not saying that I think she did make it up. But I think it is just a difficult issue where both positions were kind of unsupported on stuff, and I guess they just ended up putting them on the court anyways. Well, it was really, a lot of it was he said, she said, right? Yeah. And, like, she had, like, her journal and different things where it's, like, it does provide validity for her story, but at the same time, it's hard to deny someone this opportunity based on your truth, which is should hold the same weight as his truth. And... Like, I don't know, it just became something difficult of, like, if you don't support um, Blasey Ford, then you hate women or whatever else, when really I just don't have, I don't know the truth of it. And I guess the only two people who really do are her and him, and we'll just have to live with the decision. So did you feel that because of that, they just sort of canceled each other out? Yeah, I guess. Um, I think at the time I probably knew more about it. I think there were other things that came up that, uh, from some of the other accusers that made me think that she was maybe the one who had the most valid story, if any. Uh, but yeah, I wasn't really, I, I mean, I didn't love him. I wasn't like thrilled that he was going on the court, but I think it is easy for it to become like a Democrats versus Republicans. And like, if this is what your side thinks, you have to like stand with them and spearhead the issue with them and vice versa, instead of, like, some issues I just don't know enough about and I just don't have a strong enough opinion about and I don't really care what Trump thinks or what Mitch McConnell thinks. I just don't. I have my own opinion on things. Are you pro-life? And if so, is that one of your voting issues? I think that, for me, is, like, a complicated issue, but it's never something that I would base a vote off of. Um, I don't look at candidates 
like voting history on that issue. Uh, it's something that I think should be taken with seriously and like with some weight, the decision and the laws that we have surrounding um, abortions. But it isn't something that I base many of my votes off of. What what did you think, if anything, about Governor Abbott's civil suits against abortionists or people who transport people to abortions law? Yeah, I think it's just difficult because I think at times I want to think about the broader conservative movement and things that are doing a disservice to that. And I think for a lot of people, they're, they're set in their mind that abortions just aren't a huge issue for them. And so it kind of is hard when it... Um, alienates people a little bit from even looking into other issues. So, I don't know, I think there are certain topics that conservatives continually go back to, which makes sense if you're like an evangelical Christian, why you feel so strongly about it. But I think it brings a lot of negative attention and doesn't really highlight other issues that I think more people would find common ground on. Bad so, yeah, so I think it was just, every time I see something come up of like, Mississippi abortion ban, Texas abortion ban. It's kind of like, like this again. I don't know. I just, I, I feel like unless the Constitution was changed or the Roe v. Wade was changed, then these individual states doing it, it kind of just brings about a lot of negative media attention and drives people who maybe would be more motivated to vote conservatively away from wanting to do that. Well, and certainly people your age, right? Yeah. So I think it's something that I just wish that was kind of, I don't know, downplayed a little more, but you get why people feel so strongly about it when they do feel strongly about it because they see it as killing life, but I just think it's something that's hard. So you think, you're, would you characterize yourself as pro-life or would you say, I, I don't, my position on it is pretty nuanced and complicated and I can't say if I'm pro-choice or pro-life? I think if I were to give a word to it, I'm probably more pro-choice but it's like after a certain term and I have gone through and looked at the photos and looked at the different things and I don't have like a specific week of after week 16 I don't think we should do it um so I think it's something that because I don't have like a strong visceral opinion right away I just haven't looked into it as much but um I'm definitely not someone who thinks that we should restrict all abortion access after I don't know four weeks or something like that what candidates, if any, are you interested in seeing run for president, or at this time, do you think you could throw your vote behind? Yeah, so I don't, um, I'm not planning on voting for Trump again if he runs, so I'm pretty much just hoping that he won't run and will kind of open the field to other candidates. Um, I think that there are a lot of people who, throughout the past year, have found themselves looking a little bit more towards other candidates because they've seen how ineffectual certain Democratic leaders have been. And I think that candidates like Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, um, I'd say most notably those two, have kind of been able to garner support probably mostly Ron DeSantis. So I'd be happy to vote for him. I think that he's done a really good job of just being like a pretty staunch presence against certain things, but he really does sway a lot of the ways that I feel most of the time. I think there are other candidates like Ted Cruz who I agree with some of the stuff that they do, but I just don't really see them being able to win the presidency, and I wouldn't really want them taking up the spot again. So probably Ron DeSantis mostly. I think that's what most people are thinking. So somebody who's relatively more moderate, certainly more moderate than like a Ted Cruz or a Donald Trump. Yeah, and just someone who 
I like Trump. I think a lot of people thought he was funny. He was like kind of brought other people into politics who weren't necessarily interested in it anymore. But I think that kind of took away from his actual policy positions, and people would just hold on to like the little um, note that he would say, and then put that as the headline, and then completely like abandon anything substantive that he would have said. And I think other people who are just more level-headed and pragmatic and calm, like DeSantis, will do a better job of exposing people to ideas that I think they all agree with, at least to some extent, of like, you don't want the government involved in every aspect of your life, and maybe you agree with that, and you'll vote for him, instead of like, every story being about something like raunchy that he did, or something bad that he said, like it is with Trump. And why wouldn't you vote for Trump again? I just, I don't um, really see him winning. I don't think that there's a way that he would win. I don't really want him to win. I've pretty much been wanting to move on from Trump. I think he did like a disservice to conservatives in some ways, even though I voted for him. It is hard to kind of not be able to even say that you're remotely conservative now because you're a Trump supporter. So I would like to see someone who you can feel more comfortable supporting at least some of their policies without it being like an indictment of your character and you being someone who supports like a sexist, racist, homophobic person. Um, so yeah, I think Trump, he's just, I don't know, I think he lost once, it should be someone else's turn to try and win. If it's Trump versus Biden, what do you do? Yeah, um, I'm not sure at the moment. I don't really see myself voting for Trump again. I guess I would vote for someone third party. I wouldn't vote for Biden, so I would, I would just have to see. I mean, I'll just pray and hope that, that those are my options again. I'd be pretty disappointed. I think a lot of us are praying yeah. and hoping for that same scenario. So you are, are you double vaccinated? Yeah, so I, I got the J&J one shot and then I got my booster just a few weeks ago. Okay, you got the J&J one shot and you're boosted. So you're considered fully vaccinated and boosted and you had COVID. Yeah, so I should be good to go now, but we'll see. I you mean, got COVID not, pre-vaccine, right? What? You got COVID pre-vaccine? Yeah, and I don't have any like remotely, I don't know, anti-vax leanings in that way. It's like I'm... I'm ready for whenever. I think especially as a young person, it's just hard that so much has been shut down when it doesn't, it's not really going to affect me if I get it. It didn't really affect me when I got it, but just having to look out for everyone else, which is fine, but I'm just hoping there's something effective that comes out so I can start living a little more normally again. So even though you had COVID and it didn't really make you very sick, um, and I'm speaking right now to our listeners who are vaccine hesitant, suspicious of the vaccine, maybe even certainly anti-vaccine mandate, but maybe even anti-vaccine generally. What what was it, even though you had COVID and you weren't very sick, what was it that compelled you to get vaccinated? My school requiring it. So, I mean, I think I would have got it anyways, just because um, I'd seen other people get it and be fine. And like, I was kind of on the train of, like, I'll do anything just to get this to stop. And I would hear, you hear a lot of, like, conservative people saying, like, oh, you'll be saying that in eight, year, in eight years from now when you're getting your 57th booster, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, like, I'm definitely already kind of sick of the idea of Israel's rolling out their fourth vaccine and whatever else. But, I mean, I guess 
so I was willing to try anything and just the restrictions of things that you can do. I went to Louisiana earlier this year. I wouldn't have been able to sit indoors anywhere or do anything. Um, so that's why I got it. I don't, like, I don't love it. I'm not, like, pro-vaccine. I think people are really, like, uh, glorifying, like, getting the vaccine now as if it's, like, again, some indictment of your character. But I just got it because life's easier if I'm fully vaccinated for a lot of the things I want to do. And do you have any feelings at all on vaccine mandates? Like, yeah, like your I mean, school? Yeah, I think that comes from kind of where it all started for me of like being anti-government overreach and um, forcing. So I think that I'm not a fan of those, obviously. But it is, it is a topic where it's just difficult because I understand where people are coming from when they want to mandate stuff because they feel like it's going to make it go away faster. And that jives with your more libertarian leanings. That makes sense to me. Yeah, and then going to, like, a private institution, I just have to acknowledge, like, this is a private institution, and that's why I'm going there, because I didn't want to go to a government one, but they're allowed to force me to do whatever. And if I don't like it, I can leave. But since my school required it, I'm fine to do it. How would you characterize yourself politically? Would you characterize yourself as party-affiliate, like, the two-party system party-affiliated, or would you characterize yourself as a libertarian? It's hard. Like, you see, like, videos, I don't know if you've ever seen them, from the Libertarian Convention, and it's, like, such a joke, and they're arguing about permits to you, and, like, they don't want driver's licenses and stuff like that, where it's, like, kind of makes it seem like a laughing stock. so I don't think I identify there. Um, I'd say I'm just, I'm conservative, and I vote on issues more so than by party lines. registered as a Republican? No, because I wouldn't want anyone to be able to see that online. So you're registered as an independent? Yeah, I think I'm either independent or not affiliated. I know I didn't get to vote in the primary. (laughs) So. Don't you want to vote in the primary? No, I don't think I was able to because I'm not in, I wasn't registered. I know, but don't you want to? Don't you want to? I don't want to. Yeah, I definitely would have wanted to, but at the same time, I don't think um, I had strong feelings about it either way. And again, in Portland, I just figured that it would be like, I don't know, Bernie or somewhere like that, where it's like, I don't think it really, there wasn't a Democratic candidate that I was pulling for. So I was like, it's whatever. But if you were able, if you were a registered Republican, I know people could look that up online because voter registration is public, and that's unfortunate. But hypothetically, if you were a registered Republican, you could have engaged in the same sort of, I guess we'll call it, because you live in Portland, civil disobedience that you did in 2020, right? And um, and voted for a candidate that you knew nobody in Portland was going to vote for, just to, yeah. just to show people that, hey, there are people who think differently. Yeah, and I think that is definitely like... I just have to weigh the risks of it, and for me, it wasn't worth even registering Republican for a second, um, especially in high school. I think, like, I'm more comfortable to do this podcast now and stuff like that because I am out of that sphere. I don't have to show up to Lincoln tomorrow with my head down and whatever else. Like, I'm more of an adult now, but I think at the time, I just really didn't want kind of any association or any connection towards the Republican Party for myself. 
So I doubt anyone ever would have looked me up, but I was just too afraid to do that. Do you have any any peers at all? Any any peers from high school, from extracurriculars, from college, any peers at all who you can be authentic with and say, I voted for Trump? No. I have a friend who like knows that I'm somewhat conservative because she is also, um, but there's no one that I would say that to. So does this friend know that you voted for Trump? No. I think maybe she has an idea, but no. We've never talked about that. Do you think she voted for Trump? I think she probably didn't vote. Um, if she did vote, she maybe would have voted for him, but she seems like she would have voted. So why don't you feel safe exp- talking to her about um, opening up more politically with her? Yeah, I think it's, we just, we don't talk about politics that much. It's just kind of an acknowledgement of, we have another friend who's like very far left. And every time we're kind of all together talking about politics, we would always give each other like side eyes about stuff. And eventually we just kind of talked about how we both think a little differently than she does. But my friend's by no means like interested in politics or stuff like that. I think hers comes more from just her family and her family values. But yeah, I think a lot of times it's like, I don't want my identity to be my politics. I think a lot of people have kind of come into that and like, you have to put, I don't know, BLM in your bio and your pronouns in your bio and all this stuff to show that like, you're a good person. This is part of your identity. When really that's like probably the least interesting thing about me is that I like, like conservative politics. To me, a lot of it's just like, who cares? I don't really care about your politics. I don't know why you would really care about mine. So I'd like to kind of, I don't know, push out of the limelight. So I don't feel like the need to share with people that I'm conservative ever, really. So that, to me, that sounds almost also like an act of civil disobedience, being putting less calories and less energy behind the political tribe. Because in Portland, it's all about the political tribe. Yeah, and I think it's like, I just want, I don't know, I want people that I'm around to feel comfortable talking about things and not feeling like because I'm like a dogmatic Democrat or a dogmatic Republican, you can't say that around me. You can't like blah, blah, blah. When really it's like, I just, I don't care that much. Like it's your opinion on something and it's better if you form your own opinion instead of being like bullied into voting one way or thinking one way because you're going to be branded a racist if not. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know if I, I definitely don't think of it as, like, civil disobedience in any way, but more so just trying to, like, emulate what I would like other people to do and just not basing, like, your character off of what political party you vote for and how progressive you are. Have you been asked, either at school or at work or in any capacity, to identify yourself by your pronouns? Have you been specifically asked to do that? Yeah. Yeah, tons. It tons. Yeah, and from high school to now, it happens a lot. And like on Zoom calls, at times we're asked to put it in our little thing, and so yeah, that's like a very normal part of life now. Putting out name tags and stuff like that. So even at your at this college you're at in the South, you you're generally expected to put your pronouns in like a Zoom call or on a name tag or identify yourself. Do you do you? Do you identify your pronouns in your... Do you have, like, a college email signature or anything where you identify your pronouns? I don't personally, but I'd say majority of my professors do. 
So the majority of your professors identify themselves with pronouns in their email signature. Mm-hmm. That's so, and see, I would think that you would feel compelled to do that because it increases that sense of uh, this student's on my team and this student feels the same way that I do, your chances of getting a better grade in that class. Why, why is it that you haven't felt compelled to do that? Yeah, I think if I had an email signature, maybe I'd, like, throw it in there. I still don't oh, really have, like, anything at the bottom of my email. Um, and I think it's just, you know, with the teachers, kind of. So maybe if it was emailing a teacher and it was, like, my first time speaking to them. But usually on the first day of class, you will, like, go through and say your names and your pronouns. So I kind of assume that they know already. So on the first day, is this every class in college? I'd say maybe half of them. It kind of depends. Like, my business classes, not so much. But my other classes, yeah. And on the first day, you go around and you orally identify yourself by your name and your pronouns. Yeah. And everybody, does everybody participate in the pronouns or does anybody say pass? No, everyone participates. It's, like, kind of funny. You see people are, like, super lackluster, like, he, him. Like, they just could care less about it because they feel like it's so obvious. Um... But I haven't, I've yet to see anyone, like, object to doing it. Because I think it is just, a lot of people feel like me where it's, like, two extra words. I just don't really, it's not, I don't really care enough to, like, make a scene of it. Well, and you don't, I mean, you want to fit in mm-hmm. and be liked. And you don't, it's not a big enough, probably not a big enough issue for you to, and, and it goes against everything you're sort of trying to do, which is to fit in and is to be apolitical. It would signal that you're political about something if you passed, right? Yeah. And it is just, at times, it's like everyone in the class is saying the pronouns that you would visually guess that they were saying. So it's like, it feels like it's only for like very specific instances, but if there is someone who is like needs that to happen, then I'm like fine with that. And I don't, I wouldn't want them to be uncomfortable and have to say like, call me they them or whatever it is so I just don't mind it too much but it is a little it's taken over quickly do you have you run into any pronouns I, I, I've seen these charts of pronouns like X E and I, I, don't, I can't even tell you what they all are but have you ever run any, into any pronouns other than they and them not in person no but you see plenty of them on social media and yeah. TikTok and stuff like that. But I haven't, I've yet to meet someone in person who identifies with anything other than she, him, or they. Okay, and then explain to me, I've seen some people identify as she or he slash they. Do you understand what that means? I don't understand yeah. what that means. I think, like, I have a vague understanding of it. I think it's, like, they identify with any of those pronouns so like some people I've seen will say they go with any pronouns so you can just call them whatever so I feel like for those people it's they identify with either like she her or they them and it's kind of whatever whatever they whatever you want to call them um but yeah I think it it's confusing I know in Alabama we had there was like a bible study one day and these like 75 year olds were talking about it and like couldn't wrap their heads around the new pronouns which I think that's how a lot of people feel but as a young person you definitely think get used to it fast oh yeah especially when it's part of your everyday reality Mm -hmm. 
and you just come to expect it every single day. I was just trying to, I, I just feel like, I wonder if the, it's almost like if your pronouns are she and they or he and they, isn't the they superfluous? Like, why throw that in? I don't, it's so interesting. Is Are you, are you throwing that in there? Do you think they're throwing that in there for allyship? I think, yeah, in some capacity. And then also, like, I think there's, like, kind of an obsession with just being, like, an individual and not, and being kind of part of it, part of it with everyone else, like, being intersectional. And that is kind of, like, another rank for them for being intersectional. But, yeah, I don't know. I can't get into their heads, so maybe I'm completely wrong. But I understand. No, that, that actually makes sense to me, like, just sort of a resistance to categorization. Yeah, and, like, I've seen some things about how a lot of people are, like, embracing, um, like, their LGBTQIA plus identity because they want to get away from their white identity. And, like, you don't want to be seen as the oppressor. You want to be seen as, like, part of the intersectional hierarchy. So I think, like, that is definitely something that you see more and more with my generation that you don't see with previous ones. Did you say LGBTQIA? Plus. Plus. What's, what is the I? I actually don't know this. I think intersex and ally. Oh. Or asexual, maybe? Okay. Yeah, because if it was ally, it seems like every reasonable person I know would be LGBTQIA. Yeah, I think the ally got booted, and now it's asexual. Okay, and plus is just sort of like what anything else, whatever else. Everything else, yeah. LG, so... So we're, is that the way you're supposed to say it now? Like most people in academia don't say LGBTQ anymore. They say LGBTQIA+. That's how I've written it since I've been in college. I think people would either say that or LGBTQ+. I think the just straight up LGBTQ is kind of gotten mixed and replaced with something more inclusive. Okay. And then do you... And in, in generally in academia, is I know you use the term BIPOC, but is there a separate category for like Pacific Islanders that everybody uses? Yeah, I think that's like the AAPI. Um, and like, I don't know what like some of them stand for. I think it's Asian American Pacific Islander, maybe Asian something Pacific Islander. And would you use that? Uh, Do people use that? Yeah, they use it in specific reference to those people but I'd say it's like way more it's like using BIPOC just as a umbrella term for everything so BIPOC is an umbrella term for minorities or people of color yeah and that is the currently that BIPOC is the umbrella at least in your experience in academia and that would be the preferred term for minorities and people of color I I think so so it would be Um, very weird for somebody to replace the, the acronym BIPOC with minority. Yeah. I think it depends on the class. Like, if, like, my 75-year-old business teacher said that, I think people would be like, okay, whatever. But in, like, any class that's dealing with an issue, even remotely, like, touching on that, I think it would be weird to say minority or pretty much any other reference word. How do you say boomer without saying boomer? <laughs> Yeah, so it's like essentially if they're like above a certain age, I think it 
because they get a pass on certain things. But so it's antiquated. The word minority is now antiquated. Yeah, I'd say so. Wow. Okay. That's good to know. I think I still use it every once in a while. Although, I don't know, I think because I live in Portland, BIPOC just sort of flows naturally, even though I think it's the dumbest acronym ever, especially if BIPOC doesn't include AAPI. I mean, it seems like we need an umbrella term to speak about people who are not white, especially if we're talking about Portland culture and you want to talk about, I see, and I would say the minority culture, but you want to talk about literally the minority of a, a, a minority category of people who live in Portland. I guess the term that slips off my tongue probably just from being in Portland would be BIPOC. But, yeah, but you say that's okay. That, that encompasses AAPI for your context, university context. Yeah, that's my, that's just how I treat it. But at the same time, I don't think minority is like a taboo word. I think it's just more people trying to be like on the ball of what they view as being the best word to describe it. So I don't think people are like cringing if someone says minority, but it is just, they feel it's more accurate to say another word. So when I was growing up, it would probably be the difference between African-American and black. Mm-hmm. But then African-American became super problematic. I, th- I don't know if it was whites who coined that term, but I do remember when it became super, when I realized, I just, I connected why it was so problematic because all these black people who were not native to America were being called African-Americans. Like a Nigerian immigrant would be referred to in the 90s as an African-American. Yeah. Or a Jamaican would be referred to as an African-American, even though they were from neither America nor Africa. Yeah. I think people are still kind of uncomfortable saying, not saying African-American, but I think it has become way more prominent to not use that term anymore. I mean, I remember meeting someone who's like black and from England and is like, I'm not African-American like at all. So I don't know why I keep getting that term, but it's definitely been a lot of language shift. And I think people are talking about that because it, it's something important in the culture that's happening because we're all kind of adopting this new language for better or worse, but it's a lot to catch up on. And then we like fault old people really badly for slipping up on it. But it's like my 75 year old grandma has no idea that like this word isn't okay anymore and it's been replaced with BIPOC and whatever else like there's just a lot to keep up with is it okay to say black now or or is the preferred term BIPOC I guess if you're specifically talking about black people would you say black or would you say BIPOC yeah it's hard because I'm like uh, not the arbiter of it at all I think for myself I know but what would you choose like if you were in a situation where you where you want to talk about black people um, specifically? I'd probably say black. Okay, and so that's okay to say if you're talking specifically about black people. I think so. If you like capitalize the B and like you're coming from a place of like I don't know, you're obviously being like progressive with it. Um, but I think that word, yeah, is still uncomfortable for some people and some professors. You hear still saying African American. Um, really? Yeah, I mean, maybe just like a professor who's like my geography professor and it doesn't really come up except it comes up once and he says African-American like somewhat uncomfortably. But I think a lot of people are just 
kind of skating up the ice, not wanting to upset anyone. So they are just trying to do the best they can with it. Well, we're coming up on like two hours, which is amazing because I feel like it flew by and I had so much fun talking to you. Is there anything else that you feel like we didn't touch on or that you want to talk about? I don't think so. I tried to talk about as much as I felt like I have some ability to talk about it. But yeah, I enjoyed doing this. So thank you for letting me talk. Thanks for coming on, Sarah. I really appreciate it. And I hope next time you're in town, you come back. Or out of town now that we can do it on Zoom. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Okay, bye. Thanks again. Bye.